Good morning. I'm Nina Davidar. Our reading today is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapters 3 and 4. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The word of the Lord. Paul writes this to the Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This section and the whole rest of the section that was just read is talking about this concept, this idea about our identity being adopted sons of God. J.I. Packer, when he was talking about this, called adoption one of the most profound things in Scripture. It said, he said this in his book, Knowing God, from uh, 30, 40 years ago. I can't remember when it re- he wrote it. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. So we often think about salvation as forgiveness of sins or escape to heaven or something along those lines, like getting out of a bad thing. But this is telling us the greatest hope of the gospel is not forgiveness of your past or of your brokenness. It is that you are a son of God, adopted into the family of God. It is far greater than simply forgiveness, which is amazing. Sonship, a way to kind of combine this whole concept together, is the most profound and personal promise of the gospel message. And it gets at the root of who we are as people, our identity. And in that sense, it speaks to every culture's assumed values. In fact, it speaks into and against and overturns every culture's assumed values and speaks to our number one modern anxiety, the question of who am I? Why am I here? What makes me worthy? Our identity. This section of Scripture from 326 to 47 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I go back to it again and again because I think it speaks into our cultural moment in terms of our divisions, the reason why we hate each other, but it also speaks to each of us trying to find an identity on our own. It says, come and receive what God has for you and live in the fullness of His love for you. And I think we don't believe it. So I want to pray that God's spirit would be in us and in this space this morning. God, our Father, we have so many other voices in our heads, inside of us and around us, and you want to speak to us this morning to remind us of your love for us, the depth of your embracing arms around us. 
Lord Jesus, be with us this morning. Soften our hard hearts, awaken our dead minds. Give us hope and joy. A remembrance of your embrace of us. Amen. So I want to start looking at the divisions thing because one of the things that Paul is talking about here, talking to the Galatians who are both Jew and Gentile, is you are all one in Christ. In verse 28, we read of chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what he's doing in that little section right there is he is speaking to the primary divisions of the culture as understood by those who lived in that day and age. Whether you were Jewish or Gentile, you kind of thought of the world in these categories, and especially a Jewish writer like him is thinking about it as you could either be Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. And these were categories of worth and value because they were categories of status. Categories of status, and that was the primary way that people thought about value in that culture, is what status did you have in the wider community? So each of these titles, or each of these descriptors, I should say, talk about your place in society, your relative power compared to others, and therefore the honor that was afforded you and all that you could do. Basically, you want to know what you're worth? Look at this category. This is what the culture in that day and age would have said. You're either a Jew or a Gentile, Male or female, slave or free. These are going to be the dividers. But Paul says, no, in Christ, there's something entirely different. Speaking into and against and overturning the tables of every culture. It says that we are equally valuable. Specifically, we have equal access to God through Jesus Christ. No one is better. No one is better. No one is closer. No one is more in. In the gospel, your worth, he's saying to them, is not based on your born status. In that culture, how you were born determined your status. You're born a female versus a male, you had completely different power, rights, access. Slave-free, these things were the same. Jew, Gentile. In the ancient Near Eastern culture from like a thousand years before Jesus to the hundreds of years after, your status was fixed by birth. In our modern culture, we throw that off. We don't say your status is fixed by birth. In the modern West, your status is actually, or your, your worth, I should say, not, we don't think about status, your worth is something you perform. You might not realize this, but that's what, we have a, a culture that says anybody can become anything, right? Which is a good thing. Anyone can become president, that sort of way of thinking. But underneath of it is something slightly off. The slight offness is your worth is based on your success or you becoming your authentic self. Your worth is what you do. You perform your worth. You prove your worth. You have to live up to some standard. Yours, your cultures, your parents, the voices are all around you saying you aren't worth something unless you do this. And if you're successful, if you come in here today saying, I'm not one of those dopes who feels down on myself, you've also bought into it. You've just started, have been successful in this culture's values. See, Paul talks about it later, and I'm not going to dig into this. He talks about it in verse 3 of chapter 4, that we are all by nature enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And elementary principles is actually a term that meant the foundational building blocks of the creation. It was like earth, wind, fire, other bands, I guess, but earth, wind, fire, water. And it was like this idea that these things are the elemental principles. And he's saying you're, you're 
all enslaved by nature to elemental principles. And what he means is to your culture's assumed values. There are things inside of you you don't even realize because of a culture you were born into that you will assume are absolutely true. This is how things work. This is what matters. This is what's good, right, bad. We do it. Everyone is enslaved by nature to the culture in which we were born into. And Paul is saying, those things actually enslave you, which means they look like it's freedom. Like if I live into this, perform my life, I'll be happy. But it's ultimately an enslavement. And it does not satisfy. And it will lead to death. But the opposite is what God gives us in Christ. It's not a value based on, uh, on your bornness, like you're born a certain race or gender or status socially, nor is it something you perform, like you've got to prove yourself, earn it, be successful, achievement, be authentic. Rather, our dignity as human beings in a Christian understanding is something that is given to us by creator, by the creator. We are made in God's image. Every single person, regardless of whether they believe in Christ, has equal dignity and equal value, not based on anything you do or don't do. And through faith in Christ Jesus, all can equally be sons of God. This has implications for all of our divisions. So our divisions are not Jew-Gentile, slave-free, they, they are somewhat male-female, but you think about any of our cultural divisions right now, right? It's, right, Republican-Democrat, East Coast flyover country, like West Coast, you know, like we have these different cultural political ones. We have social hierarchy based on your economic status, your popularity. We have all sorts of ways of valuing ourselves. In certain cultures, in subcultures, it's how big is your family, how perfect are your kids? We have all of these things that divide us. And a sense of superiority is inborn in every single culture. Because you know what we're always looking for? We're always looking to figure out who's on our team. And that's why we subdivide into little cultures and subcultures. And we want to know who's on our team. We want to feel safe. And anybody who's not on our team is a threat. And so we have to disdain them, look down on them, fight them. And Paul is saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you are all equally able to access God the Father. This also has our implications even like culturally on our approach to human rights. You know, our modern human rights is a really good thing, but it's based on that fundamental idea, for the most part now especially, of being able to do the same thing as somebody else, which on, on one level is actually true and good and right, but it's missing a point because certain people in any culture system of, of human rights is going to be cut out. So in our modern culture, we want to make sure everyone has equal access to do the same things, except for those who can't do anything at all. And so we devalue the unborn and the aging. They can't do anything. And actually, we won't say it, but they have no value because they can't do. In a Christian view, race and gender and ability, disability, have no bearing. All the things that divide us have no bearing, and it pushes even our human rights approach at a deeper level. Paul is trying to point at all these differences, right? Now, one of the things he's not doing, he's not saying there are no differences. There is still racial and gender 
and economic and social and political differences. He's not saying that a Jew is no longer Jewish or a male is no longer a male or, you know, like he's, he's not saying that. He's simply saying something more powerful, actually, is they do not matter. They do not matter ultimately with regards to our status before God. In her autobiographical book, Rachel Gilson writes about this very verse when she says, Paul isn't saying that these categories literally don't exist, nor that these qualities are meaningless or unimportant. What is he saying then? That our identity as Christians, and more to the point, our unity as Christians, is more fundamental than even those things that are true and important about ourselves. Who we are in Christ is more important than our race, our gender, our education, our ability. Because we are being born into and brought into a new unity, a new family. She goes on to write, Paul is saying that everything about us moves underneath the reality of being united with others into Jesus, into God's family. This is the main thing about us plural intended. The gospel says to the Galatians who were having these battles, you are all brothers and sisters in Christ. You are equally children of God. Now, we struggle to believe that because we even, like on the whole family thing, we think about ourselves as single or married, having children or being childless. And what this is saying is, look, regardless of your marital status, Regardless of whether you, whether you are living in a very large family under one house right now, or you've lost everyone. Or if you've been adopted and never known your parents, you are not alone. You will never be alone. You are not alone. You are not just born into a relationship, born again into a relationship with God. You're born into a relationship, into a family. Jesus redefined family. He was teaching one time, and outside they said, hey, your mother and brother are outside. And he said, who are my mother and brother and sisters? Anyone who does the will, my will. Anyone who follows me. He's redrawing family around a new allegiance, not based on blood or birth or marriage, but based on faith in Christ. And saying, therefore, to any of us, to any of us, the church, big C church, the church is a more fundamental unit to you than your nuclear family. Because it is eternal. It will last. Paul is inviting us to see this new gospel identity. And he's saying in Galatians 3.28, your primary identity is no longer the color of your skin, your ethnicity, your citizenship, your born gender, your felt gender, your sexuality, your politics, your education, your marriage status, your career success, it's none of that. Your true and real identity is an in Christ identity. It is meant to be the controlling identity through which every other identity you think you wear is, is seen and viewed and filtered, through which every other identity submits and is shaped your controlling identity is your gospel identity. And we need to hear the truth of our gospel identity. 
Paul gives us the hope of it in this next section, chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. Let me read it and then break down where I want us to go with this. He says, In the same way, when we also, we also, when we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, by nature, that was our status, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Four things we're going to look at that are in this section in the previous one. Four things that I want us to hold on to that is the objective truth of your gospel identity. And I'm praying that God speaks through one or all of these to you and to me this morning. They are adoption and inheritance and sonship and clothing. So first, adoption. In a couple of verses, he's hitting specifically on adoption. And while J.I. Packer said this is one of the most profound things, here's some of the truth of it. In Roman law, this is how it worked under Roman law that Paul's writing about Roman law essentially to the Galatians. In Roman law, if a man did not have children or didn't have a son that could inherit his property because his daughters couldn't inherit his property, he might adopt a son who, who then, the, the instant that the adoption was done, that son, which was often an adult, would become his own son. He would take over his name, his honor and status in the community. If he was a well-known, respected man in the village, then this son would be just as much so as if it was his born firstborn son. That son would then inherit all of his land and would carry on his name. And it carried on the honor and name and place of the person. That was the greatest value in that culture was to have your name carried on, your land carried on, to have this family. It also meant that whoever had been adopted, their status changed instantly. If they were poor and they were adopted by somebody who was wealthy, which was usually the case, they then became wealthy. Their status jumped and changed entirely, completely. They might still feel like a poor person, but they aren't anymore. They might still feel like somebody whose future is uncertain. Their future is secure. In fact, it was more secure for them than for a born son. Did you know in Roman law, you could not disinherit an adopted son? You could disinherit your own son. You could say, well, he turned his back on me, he's out. But you could not disinherit an adopted son. That status, that wealth, that future was entirely, completely secure. You had a hope and an assurance that could not be diminished by anything. Adoption is what God invites us into. He adopts us through his son so that we have an inheritance. In chapter 3 and 4, Paul talks about that inheritance, that we as believers in Christ, including the Gentiles, are heirs of God's promises to Abraham. Now, what's interesting is God's promise to Abraham, his original promise in Genesis 12 and carrying on, was that you will have a son and sons, and you will be a great nation. You will inherit a land. So think about that. The promise to Abraham was not, I will give you eternal life, forgiveness of your sins. I will make you happy. Actually, he did say, I'll make you happy, but the way he did it was in the ancient Near Eastern way. You will have sons and a land, heirs and inheritance, the very thing that was most valuable to them. It was the most powerful symbol of all that they longed for. We don't long for those same things. So whatever we long for, he would put in there, 
Inheritance was of ultimate importance in the ancient Near East. It meant that your name existed. You were somebody. It would last. There was honor for you as a father and honor for your son. So they were not after happiness or success or freedom, the things that we kind of are looking for. And think about this as well. Okay. The Bible in other places talks about Jesus, the Son of God, right? So the Son of God is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, as the heir of heaven, of all that is his Father's. All things on earth and above the earth and under the earth have been subjected to him. He inherits it all. But in this passage, Paul says, you and I are sons too, sons of God. In some way, all that is his is also ours. Everything that belongs to Jesus is in some way ours as well. We are heirs of eternity, heirs of all that the Father has given to his Son. And that's the third one I want to hit on is sonship, that we are sons of God. This sounds kind of challenging. It sounds kind of challenging, especially if you're a woman. What's interesting here I mean, you guys know this. We've talked about it here. The status of women in the ancient Near Eastern culture was devalued. You could not inherit land. You were not a, a person on your own. You could not testify legally. It was one of the amazing parts about women being included as the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. You never would have done that unless it was true because it would have devalued your testimony. And that's why Paul says male, female, right? And yet, he doesn't say you are sons or daughters. And that's specifically because of the devalued status of women in the ancient Near East. He was actually pushing against that Greco-Roman Jewish ancient way of understanding things. He was completely flipping it over. Only sons could inherit, only sons had status. You were all one of those. Beth Moore in her study on Galatians puts it this way, sons, not daughters, had status and yet Paul says that God adopted both of us, both men and women, as sons. So there are places when the, the Greek is, says sons or brothers, and you should probably say brothers and sisters, but here, you, we actually all need the word son there. Another writer, Carolyn Custis James, explained it more in depth when she wrote this, given the fact that in the first century patriarchal culture, Sons were prized above daughters who didn't inherit, did not show up in genealogies, and were simply married off to build another man's family. The fact that Paul is telling a mixed audience that they are all sons is not diminishing women in the least. To the contrary, Paul's words are elevating them to the same high status in God's family as their brothers. Paul is telling women, as well as Gentiles, as well as slaves, that in God's family, you are all sons. You are all sons, heirs, heirs of God. That's a very powerful thing if we let it sit. It has implications for all of us who ever feel like we're on the outside, who ever feel like we don't measure up, like we don't look good enough, 
we're not talented enough, we're not going to get into the best school. You get to that midpoint in your life and you think, is this all I've done? We, we measure ourselves in these ways. He says, I value you as my own son. In fact, he puts it very clearly that he values us as his own son in that strange phrasing of 327 about our clothing. In, in chapter 3, verse 27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That put on Christ language, as Paul uses it elsewhere, it's basically wearing something. You, you wear Christ, which sounds kind of creepy, like we're going to wear the skin of Christ or something, or like a Christ you know, costume for Halloween. Um, but, of course, the ancient Near East, the Middle Eastern culture, as well as the Greco-Roman culture, again, we're kind of dig into that a little bit, clothing was not expressiveness. Nowadays, your clothing is your expression. Like, this is who you are. Or sometimes it is like, you know, this is my job. I'm a policeman, I'm an uh, officer, I'm a priest, that sort of thing. But in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman culture in which Paul is writing, your clothing indicated your status. It in indicated your status in the village, in the community what honor you were afforded. It described you instantly whether you were a peasant or a prince. Everyone knew based on what you were wearing, who you were, and what status you held in that community. And on top of that, many ancient Near Eastern studies and Old Testament studies have indicated that the clothing that they wore was also indicative of their inheritance place. Why do you think the brothers hated Joseph with his technicolor dream coat? It wasn't because, oh, he's got the prettiest coat. They didn't care about that. Like, oh, why did he get some new kicks? Like, nobody cared about that in that culture. What they cared about was inheritance. Joseph was like the 10th born son. The firstborn sons should get the biggest share of the inheritance. Essentially, what his clothing was implying, it's indicating, is that he received the oldest brother's share. He was bumped ahead, clearly the favorite. Why do they want to get rid of him? Why does that 10th son 11th son, 12th son, whatever he was, why does he get to have the firstborn son inheritance? Let's get rid of him. It's why there's something really profound when Jonathan and David make a covenant that they don't just shake on it, but Jonathan, who is the son of the king, he is a prince, one day he will be king, when he makes a covenant of friendship, of brotherhood with David, he gives him not only his sword, but his cloak, indicating you are the rightful future king. And it's why the first thing the father does when the prodigal son returns after hugging him is he puts sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger and a robe on his back. He re-inherits the son who has burned through his inheritance. Wow. And Paul is saying, we put on Christ's clothing, essentially. So, very simply, who is the son of God? It's Jesus. Now think about this. What do you think God the Father's view of Jesus his son is? What is God's view of Jesus his son? At the baptism of Jesus, you hear a voice that says, this is my beloved son, in whom, with whom I am well pleased. He had not yet gone to the cross. This is my beloved son, in whom, with whom I am well pleased. In the Gospel of John, Jesus describes his own relationship with the Father. I and the Father are one. I do nothing except the Father tells me. Basically, he was in constant communion, in deep relationship with the Father. The Father loved Jesus, the Son. And now, according to Scripture, he has ascended into heaven 
and sits at the right hand of the throne of God, the Father. There's God the Father sitting on his throne. There's Jesus, his son. What is God's view of his son? Like, yeah, you're all right. Hey, you had a good week. Good job. Hey, thanks for taking out the trash. It wasn't absolute and total enamored eternal love. You cannot get past his value of his son. When we put on Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, when you put your trust in Christ, he does cover your nakedness and shame. He covers your nakedness and shame. But this is also telling us that God's view of you, God's view of you is the same view he has of Jesus. It's like he sees you and he's like, oh, it's you, my beloved son. Come to me, let's talk. Sit down next to me. You are my son and I love you. Adoption, inheritance, sonship, clothing. Our gospel identity is that we are sons of God. And I'm okay with us saying children of God, daughters of God, sons of God, brothers and sisters. Like that, that meant something really powerful back then. But really and truly, I think of my primary identity as child of God. So hear that. I, I'm saying my child of God is my number one identity my controlling view of myself. My controlling view of myself is not pastor. It's not father. It's not husband. It's not American. It is not my talents or my degrees or my athletic prowess. It is none of those things. And Paul is telling us, he wants us to hear this, we sell ourselves short. We actually cheapen our worth when our controlling identity is anything but in Christ, anything but son and daughter of God. Sam Albury summed it up in an interview that he did. Who you are in Christ is who you truly are. It is the real you. Living the Christian life is not you trying to become some other person that's not really you. You are most you when you are embracing the identity he has given you and seeking to live it out. But we don't believe it. You know we have other voices in our head? Your natural mind, your natural mind is going to see yourself and see all your shortcomings and say, I don't really measure up to that. Your rational mind is going to say, if I give myself wholly to Christ, if that's my controlling identity, then what about my success? What, how will other people view me? Satan, of course, comes in and says, you can't actually trust this God. He's just trying to get you to believe a lie. Can we even believe that God exists? The voices of our culture will tell you there's a whole other set of values where you're really going to be happy. And our peers, our peers are going to give us that same message. And then inside of us, these voices keep coming. And all around us, and they say, you can't believe this. This isn't your identity. These things aren't really true about you. You know, if you go this way, you're going to die. Your happiness is going to die. You'll never live. There's no life this way. Don't follow that. And that's why we need the experience of a loving father. Our gospel identity is objectively true, even if we don't feel it on a given day. But we do need to experience it. And that's why God has given us his Holy Spirit. 
And because you are sons, verse 6 says of chapter 4, God has sent the Spirit into, of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, the prodigal son, when he had gone off and spent everything and he came to his senses, what did he do? He said, you know what? I'm going to go and tell my father, Father, I'm not worthy to be one of your sons. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he comes back to his father with basically a signed employment contract with his father. And what does his father do? He runs and he hugs him and he kisses him and he says, my son, my son, my son. The son needed to experience the love of his father because he wouldn't have believed it on his own. The spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is not infancy baby talk. You might have heard that. It's not infancy baby talk, but it is personal, familial, and best friends. If you have a friend and you, you're really close to them, you might have nicknames like Pants or Ronson or Tiny or The Hobbit. Like, these are nicknames. Why? Because they're good friends of yours. Who gets a nickname? Who gets a nickname? Close friends and family. Like, grandparents often have a nickname. You don't say grandfather, grandmother, right? You have some other name for them. This is saying the Spirit allows us to call God by a nickname. The Lord of all creation, holy Holy, holy. The one before whom Isaiah, when he sees him, says, I am unworthy to be in your presence. I am undone. I'm going to die. The one that says to Job, hey, stand up like a man. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The judge of all the universe says, you can call me by a nickname. Abba, Father. Spirit saying, I'm here with you. I love you so much. And I believe we need to experience this. It says the Spirit cries, Abba Father, the Spirit inside of us. It's literally cry out. It's, like an, it's, like a, it's, it's more than just crying. It's, just, it's crying out for help. And I don't know what that looks like for you, the Spirit calling out inside of you to Abba Father. I know for me sometimes it's in the beauty of creation when I'm stopping and I'm thinking and I'm just praying and I'm with God and in creation. And there's a wonder that comes over me seeing the leaves or the stars and absolute peace descends. God's power, God's sovereignty. But it can also be in deep anguish. It can be in deep anguish when the life of your child is sitting there before you and you feel totally helpless. And you cry out, God, I've got nothing. You're my only hope. Sometimes it's the spirit inside of us connecting us to memories or music. It can be in a worship service, a particular song, a particular line in a song, a song that reminds you of somebody who's gone. And in that, you can have tears but it's an assurance, joyful tears, a recalling God's goodness, God's goodness in your life. I actually had one of these experiences last night doing evening prayer. Evening prayer is one of those liturgical things. You know, it's monastic-y. I don't know. It's like Compline. There's a set of prayers in there. You know, like if liturgy doesn't really work for you, 
try it sometime. There's a set of prayers that I don't often do, and I've just recently been kind of just trying to pray through these prayers. It says that this evening may be good and holy and peaceful, we entreat you, O Lord. That there may be peace in the whole world, we entreat you, O Lord. And then there's this one, that we may be bound together by your Holy Spirit in the communion of blank and all your saints, entrusting one another and all our life to Christ, we entreat you, O Lord. And I got to that when I was praying it out loud because I was sitting on my patio preparing for today. And what I've been doing recently, I'm not much of a, like, the the whole idea of a saint is basically any brother or sister in Christ, historic or today alive. And so I've tended to reflect on people who have affected me, often historic people, like the readings of Luther or of C.S. Lewis. But last night as I was there, I started praying. And it was the Holy Spirit inside of my heart. And I said, this is what I wrote, I said, that I may be bound by your Holy Spirit in the communion of Rick Beckwith and Will Cravens and Mike Valliere and Alistair Begg and John Piper and J.I. Packer and N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis and Jimmy O'Keefe and John Yates and Chuck Alley and John Manzano and Tim Keller and I named close friends of mine and people that I've known through the years and I just name after name, Tate Johnston and Mike Haynes and Kevin Hardy and Andy Fetzer and Trip Kimbrough and Brian Berry and the tears were coming down my face because I was hearing God say, you are not alone. You are not alone. You have never been alone. I am with you. You may feel alone, but I am with you. Look at your life. You have never been alone. You are not alone now. I am with you. That was not my rational brain. It was not my culture's message. That was not Satan. That was not my natural mind. It was the Holy Spirit crying out, Abba, Father. Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, in Gethsemane. And we can too. Do you hear God speaking to you this morning? He is talking sounds like my voice, it's not, although he does use me and others, but it's his spirit in your thoughts as you're processing things that I've been talking about and things you know in your heart that you need to hear this morning. Hear this one last time, you are a child of God. He knows you, he knows all of you. He knows all of your pain and your guilt and your heartbreak and your failures and your shame and your insecurities, and your fears. And he loves you. And he wants you to feel his love. Let us pray. God, our Father, this is almost too hard to believe that we are sons and daughters of the creator of the universe, that you love us, and that nothing can take that away. Lord, we need to rest in the fullness of our adoption, our inheritance, our sonship, and our relationship with you, the creator and Lord of the universe, who we also call Abba, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.